today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, uh, U.S. President-elect Joe Biden's team says that he plans to roll back many of uh, Donald Trump's most controversial policies and take steps to address the novel coronavirus pandemic as well. And he's all going to do this on the first day. Ben Thomas has some details. Incoming White House Communications Director Kate Bedingfield tells ABC's This Week Biden will work with Congress to pass his American Rescue Plan, which includes... An effort to fund a coordinated federal vaccine effort. It's an effort to get shots into American arms to ensure that we can once and for all finally get this virus under control and get our economy back on track. Biden is planning a 10-day blitz of executive actions that will not require congressional action. Those include an end to Trump's restriction on immigration from some Muslim-majority countries and rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, as well as a mandate that people wear masks on federal property and during interstate travel. Ben Thomas, Washington. So how's this going to roll out and what are the impacts going to be on, well, not just Canada, but the rest of the world? And let's talk about the inauguration itself. To do all this, we're pleased to welcome to the program uh, Professor Ron Goodman. Uh, Professor Goodman is uh, in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. Professor, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us again. Thanks, Raj, for having me on. Uh, before we get into some of the protocols and some of the policies that uh, that may be enacted here, uh, to suggest this is going to be a very different inauguration, I guess, would be a massive understatement. You need only look at some of the uh, coverage we've seen over the last four or five days of the way Washington looks right now to understand that. Yeah, I, I think um, even if the uh, insurrection at the Capitol hadn't happened um, earlier this month, I think the inauguration would have been very different just because of it happening in pandemic times. It wouldn't have been able to be a mass public event. Um, but I think after what happened on January 6th, uh, the precautions are going to be even more severe. Um, I, I think that uh, Americans who are usually used to celebrating the, the inauguration as a peaceful transition of power uh, can't really look at it the same way this year. I think we have to look at it uh, as in many ways under a cloud because we've just seen um, uh, you know, how serious uh, some people are on the far right and in the Republican Party um, about trying to incite violence to overturn election results. You know, fortunately, it didn't... Uh, uh, didn't seem to have worked out this time, uh, but I think that puts the whole thing under a cloud in many ways. The the transition of power that you talked about, the peaceful transition of power, has been a tradition, as has been uh, the outgoing president to at least attend. Uh, well, in the case of Biden, uh, when Obama was leaving office, they actually had them over to the White House, and then of course attended the uh, the inauguration, swearing in on the Capitol steps. Uh, Trump's not going to be anywhere to be seen around that time, is he? No, no, I imagine he's going to be taking a jet back to Florida, if not, uh, well, to Russia or wherever it will happen in the next uh, four years. But, uh, no, I, I don't think you can uh, incite a violent uprising against um, uh, your successor and then expect to be welcome at the next inauguration. I think he's, uh, uh, he's doing what he ought to do in the circumstances. Well, I know that there were some stories late last week uh, that uh, the Trump was asking for uh, red carpet treatment as he leaves the White House, a 21-gun salute, and maybe a flyover by U.S. military uh, personnel. I, I, my understanding now is that's been kiboshed by the military, but uh, it, it's probably very typical of a guy like Trump that wants to go out with a bang and make it all about him. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm sure he does. I'm sure this is his last chance. I, I think that um, you know, one thing that has been a hallmark of his presidency has been and trying to do the most outrageous action possible to generate attention. I, I think what we're going to see um, probably on the very last day of his administration is a uh, blitz of pardons, um, and I think uh, he, he's going to do what he can uh, in one last attempt uh, to make the story about him. I, I think given the coverage in places like the New York Times about how much people are paying for access to him and his administration, um, I, I think we can expect uh, a lot of corruption in those decisions. But unfortunately, the pardon power is one of the um, uh, fairly... Uh, unilateral and unquestioned powers the Constitution gives to the president. 
Uh, so there isn't a lot of recourse if we see a lot of corrupt pardons coming out of the White House in the next couple of days. And you've seen the mixed reports over the weekend uh, about selling these pardons. That they, there was, He's basically putting a price. I know a number of his staff were told, according to the New York Times, were actually selling, I think it was like for tens of thousands or $50,000, uh, access to the president, to, to, in other words, to even see if you could get one. Uh, I guess some of the higher echelon folks that may be looking for pardons, uh, really Judy Anley comes to mind, uh, it's $2 million. That's the price tag. I, I, I don't remember a professor ever hearing that in the past of, of a president or a staff actually selling pardons to people no i i think in in the past um you know bill clinton had this issue at the end of his administration there were um you know, controversies here and there about people involved in campaign donations or had political or financial connections to either democratic or republican parties um getting consideration for pardons and receiving pardons sometimes uh, but this does take it to a whole new level the, the open buying and selling of access for pardons but i i would say that aside from the isolated cases here and there of people buying access, uh, which is um, obnoxious and corrupt. I think the more serious thing to watch out for is if there are pardons extended to people who participated in the insurrection on January 6th, uh, because I think that's a much more serious precedent, the idea that uh, the president is claiming the power not only to you know, summon a mob to attempt to overturn a democratic election, but then using the pardon power you know, to essentially absolve him of responsibility. If the president can do that, and if the president claims that kind of power, um, I think that's the especially frightening precedent. Uh, by the way, Professor, here's some breaking news. Just as you and I are talking, uh, there is supposedly, or was supposed to be, uh, an inauguration uh, rehearsal on the steps of the Capitol. Uh, that is now being evacuated because there's smoke coming out of the, well, they say it's behind the Capitol building. They haven't actually identified exactly where it is. So it sounds as if uh, this is the insurrection part two, or at least some attempt anyway to try to, to disrupt things. Well, I, I hope not, but I think I, I think it's it's certainly right that everyone's on edge, especially what would happen on, on January 6th. And I think what's still coming out is not just the fact that uh, these were a bunch of random weirdos uh, radicalized on the Internet, that there was participation by uh, ex-military people, that there may have been some complicity in uh, police forces and, and in parts of the defense establishment, uh, and certainly from high-ranking Republicans. So I think, uh, you know, I, I think an image that came out of the uh, first reports of the insurrection was that uh, these were just a bunch of weirdos in costumes. But I think the more information that comes out and we learn about how uh, serious it actually was, we see that there was a lot of complicity from uh, uh, high-ranking uh, individuals and authorities in this. And I, I think that's what makes it scary, not just the images that came out on the first uh, day of. Well, especially some of the stuff we saw over the weekend that was released by uh, some of the newspapers, the New York New Yorker being one of them, uh, that actually suggested that as they were breaking into the actual building itself, there's actually someone giving them directions. You go down this hall over to here, and that's where the speaker says. So no, there, there was, to suggest it was an inside job, I think he's getting more and more credibility now. Well, yes, I, I think uh, similarly, uh, James Clyburn, who's the uh, highest-ranking uh, uh, African-American in the House leadership, um, you know, he said, and one of his members of staff said, um, that when uh, rioters reached the office with his nameplate on it, he, they knew to go to a different office where he was usually found um, that was not clearly marked and didn't have his nameplate on it. Uh, someone had given that information about where to find him. Unfortunately, um, uh, he and his staff were harmed, but someone had given them that information. Um, so I think that's, uh, I think that deserves more investigation. I, I think another thing that came out in the uh, New Yorker story um, was that as some of the uh, rioters were in the Senate chamber, uh, they were recorded saying things like, Ted Cruz wants us to do this. You know, mm -hmm. now maybe he hadn't given them direct information or direct instructions, but he had certainly, through his statements and through his efforts to um, uh, delegitimize the election, had provided the ideological cover for this to happen. 
Uh, he'd legitimized what they were doing in a lot of ways. Uh, he hasn't said anything about that. He hasn't come out to disavow them. Um, he hasn't explained why they were citing him as an authority to do what they were doing. So I think that just shows that this, this isn't a couple of people from the Internet. This is people reacting to a coordinated set of messages from the leadership of the Republican Party. And I, you know, I've said this before, but the Constitution gives Congress the power to expel people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, uh, who incited this insurrection. Um, and that that's what part of the 14th Amendment is for. We've used it before for just that purpose. And I think uh, Congress, Democrats, would be making a big mistake if they didn't take a hard look at doing it again. Just a quick point. We're just about out of time here. There's lots more to talk about, obviously, Professor. But on, on a, a point of interest, uh, we're told that... Uh, it, it, well, as, as soon as he's inaugurated, one of the first orders of business uh, that then-President Biden will do is issue a number of executive orders uh, to deal with a number of Trump policies. We're assuming the Muslim ban is going to be one of those, uh, some climate issues, uh, the Iran deal probably be reinstituted. We, we, we know a lot about these things already. Uh, Trump got a lot of criticism for issuing executive orders as opposed to actually seeking legislation. Uh, from Biden to do this, is it because an executive order can only be relinquished by another executive order? Well, I, I think there are a few things. I think that one thing, because a lot of the changes Trump made, like the Muslim ban, were made by executive order, they can be over, uh, overturned by executive order. Um, I think that one thing Biden has the ability to do is to start working on a legislative agenda, although he has a very narrow majority in the Senate, uh, which is mm-hmm. going to be tough to get legislation through without repealing the filibuster. But I, I would say that part of the reason you want to come in with the blitz of executive orders on the first day is who, in a sense, set an agenda for your presidency and set a tone for what's going to happen afterwards. But again, as you mentioned, the problem with executive orders is that they're fragile in a way that legislation isn't. You know, so think about Biden participating in the uh, Paris Climate Accords. I think it's good news that the U.S. is uh, talking more seriously about climate change now. But I also think that it lacks a certain kind of credibility if a Republican president comes in next time and can overturn um, this kind of executive order from Biden. So this is the sort of thing that without legislation that has some staying power is just not going to have the kind of credibility um, it could otherwise have. Yeah, that's the frustration. It's on again, off again, on again, off again, depending on the administration. It's uh, Well, we'll see what happens and just uh, as we get some of the details about this. Uh, also following the story about the, 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 the problems seem to be happening in the Capitol building these days, too. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time. Great to get, to get your perspective on this. I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for having me, and have a good rest of your day. You too. Professor Ron Goodman, of course, from uh, uh, Ryerson University, talking about the inauguration. Uh, we talked about a number of the things that uh, President-elect Biden uh, will be President Biden, of course, on Wednesday. And uh, one of the other stories that, of course, is uh, now making news here on this side of the border is we are told now that uh, one of the first orders of business that uh, President Biden will do is uh, to uh, get out of the Keystone Pipeline deal. Uh, now, this is a very controversial piece of legislation. Of course, the Obama-slash-Biden administration uh, had not uh, endorsed this deal. Uh, Donald Trump did, and it looks like he is going to attempt to overturn that. Well, not without some ramifications, of course, on this side of the border. As you might expect, Premier Mo of uh, Saskatchewan and Premier Kenny of Alberta uh, themselves are very upset about this. So what are the ramifications if, in fact, they go ahead with this? I want to bring Ian Lee into the conversation, Associate Professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, good morning. Thanks so much for for the time today. Uh, my pleasure, Bill. 
I was going to initially ask you if this is a surprise, but uh, uh, for those that have been following the U.S. campaign and and Biden's run, first of all, as candidate Biden uh, to get the nomination and subsequently to that, uh, he talked about pipelines and things of this nature. So from my standpoint, Ian, this didn't surprise me at all. No, it is. It doesn't surprise me, but I, I do want to uh, make it very clear that I am. Uh, the data overwhelmingly suggests that this is purely political. Let me explain. First, I think he's doing this for three reasons, three separate correlated reasons. Number one, he's uh, appeasing or appealing to the progressive wing of the Democratic Party who are much more radical than Joe Biden. Joe Biden is a centrist. It's extremely well known he's a centrist. Mm-hmm. But the, the progressive wing, and I'm talking Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, AOC, are, are very publicly hostile, completely opposed to pipelines, and have said so uh, over and over. And they want climate change. They want carbon tax. They want many, many more things. They want the end of oil and gas is what they want. Um, and he knows that they have many, many demands for him, and he can't meet most of them. And he won't meet most of them because he's a centrist guy. But on this one, he can. So he can give this as a, a, a you know, a dog, you know, bones of the dog sort of thing, because it's, it's essentially costless. Let me explain why. The second reason is that this is essentially protectionism for American oil and gas companies. It's going to stop 850,000 barrels a day from Canada that would otherwise drive down, increase the glut of oil, and drive down prices to American oil producers. Thirdly, this imposes costs overwhelmingly on Canadians who do not vote in American elections, not on Americans. So this is a triple win-win-win. He is able to say to the progressive wing, look, I'm, I, I hear you, I'm on your side, I'm with you, look what I've done, you've demanded I cancel Keystone, I've done it. And at the same time, he makes oil, That this is really uh, amazing, he makes oil and gas uh, producers in the States happy at the same time, even though they're on the opposite side of the debate, normally, with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, because they are facing less competition, and best of all, Normally, when you have to make a tough decision, and the Biden administra- uh, future administration is portraying this as a tough decision, I laugh. The costs are being imposed on Canadians and Albertans, not on Americans. So this is truly a brilliant announcement from a political point of view in the United States. The, the problem here, and I wanted to get your comment on this, as uh, Jason Kenney so rightly uh, observed uh, after this announcement came out, uh, this is not the same Keystone Pipeline that, that the Obama Biden administration turned their back on. That's right. uh, there have been many modifications made to this to try to appease some of those concerns, and, and they're scratching their heads saying, look, you know, what else do we have to do here? And they reduced the GHU emissions. But let yeah. me point something else out, because people have to really, I mean, the, the, the subtext that everyone's saying is, look, you know, it's climate change, climate change, you know, we've got to respond, we can't just sit on our, on our backside, you know. I went to the U.S. Department of Transportation, because they're the uh, owner, as I can call it that, of the regulatory body that regulates pipelines in the States. It's called PHMSA, Pipeline Hazardous Materials Safety Administration, created by Congress. They regulate it, and they have awesome statistics. Here's a statistic that will grab everybody's attention. There are 2.5 million miles of active pipelines crisscrossing the United States delivering, oh my goodness, oil and gas. In other words, the very same thing the Keystone Pipeline was doing, going to do. So one of the arguments was Keystone's dangerous. 
except PHMSA says that pipelines are the absolute safest method of transporting oil and gas. This is on their website. Anybody listening to me right now can go Google it and look it up. It's there. And secondly, Biden is not canceling one, one yard, one, one foot, let alone one mile of American pipelines. So if this was truly about, quote, safety or reducing uh, the emissions of the burning of the consumption of oil and gas, well, then they would be announcing uh, at the same time um, decisions to eliminate or shut down or at least radically reduce the 2.5 million miles of American pipelines. But they're not. And there's not a hint that they're going to. There's not a hint that they're going to uh, reduce American dependence on oil and gas, which is 80% of the totality of all energy consumed in the U.S. is oil, is, is oil and gas. And that's from the U.S. Department of Energy. It's on their website. So my point being, this is being portrayed as a, 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 a to save the environment. In fact, what was reported this morning was they said, we're going to be evidence-based, unlike that Trump. Well, if they were evidence-based, they'd be talking about the 2.5 million miles of pipelines that they're not canceling in the states. If they were evidence-based, they would talk about their own regulator who says it's the safest method of transporting oil and gas. So therefore, that's why I have concluded that this has absolutely nothing to do with the environment. This is about appeasing the uh, progressive wing of the party that's demanded it. It's about protectionism for oil and gas companies in the states, and it has the added bonus on top of all that of putting costs on people who do not vote for the American elections called Canadians. Well, more to come on this, I guess, when they make the official announcement. Ian, as always, thanks so much for your, your perspective on this. Greatly appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about misinformation and social media and the impact that it's had as we've talked about some of the terrible things that happened, of course, on January the 6th at the Capitol building when the, the mob uh, ascended upon the Capitol building. People died as a result of that. And uh, as we found through the, uh, all the investigations that have gone on so far, uh, misinformation uh, on the social media and on the Internet has been a major factor for years in uh, some of the, well, frankly, hatred that has developed, uh, not just in America. You know, we can't just focus on that. It's happening in other places as well. Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Elizabeth Bra, who is a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, the uh, Institute, by the way, is uh, talking about this in a number of different ways. Uh, Ms. Bra and uh, Marcus Kolga uh, from uh, MLI's Straight Talk have uh, come up with a podcast, uh, well, actually a piece of a podcast, called uh, Pod Bless Canada that talks about a conversation uh, between a number of folks about uh, misinformation on the internet and what's happened and we're so pleased to welcome her to the bill kelly show to talk about this uh, Ms. Braw, thank you so much for the time glad you could be with us today thank you for your interest well, let's, let's talk a little bit about this, because it's certainly been front of mind for an awful lot of us. As We saw uh, the barrage of, of tweets that we got from Donald Trump, well, well, long before he became President Trump, of course, and, and the impact that it's had on society. And I know that we tend to focus on Trump, and I understand that for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but but he, he might have been the one at the apex, at the top of this, but there was an empire of people that advocated this hashtag and number one of the things, and it, it led to what some people thought was an insurmountable empire of misinformation. That's right, and, and, and frankly, it's, it's not just the people who who, who engage in disinformation uh, voluntarily. It's it's all of us. I mean, how many of us 
actually check the information that, that we retweet or share on other social media before we share it. I, I'm, I'm, I, I venture to, to uh, I venture best that it's, it's man, the majority of us don't check the information. So we all, most of us, contribute to this disinformation um, uh, maze. Uh, and, and that is uh, why we are in the terrible situation where we are now, where nobody's quite sure which information they can trust. Well, therein lies the problem, and, and you're absolutely right. As soon as I, I started reading the piece here, I thought, how many times have all of you, and I know people have done it, I've probably done it at time too, and you read something, a meme or on, on Facebook or, or something on Twitter, and you say, I agree with that, I'm going to forward that. Well, you don't necessarily know the source. I mean, you have no idea whether or not it's valid or not, but there at all, all of a sudden, you're perpetuating what might be a myth. That's exactly right, and I think... This is where we haven't caught up with with uh, the changing nature of information, and it has been said many times in the in, in the past in, in in the era of of uh, traditional news, so TV, television, radio, and and print. The information was vetted, yes, in in some ways. Uh, in many cases, it was uh, it had a political flavor, but at least some editor, some journalist somewhere had vetted it. Now we don't even have that protection, and and uh, uh, it it. it it's, uh, it wasn't obvious that would happen when, when Twitter was founded. By the way, I went to see it when it was one year old, uh, when I was a tech correspondent in San Francisco. Who would have thought this tiny company would, would sort of dominate news dissemination in the world? Same thing with Facebook. Um, and that's why we are at this point. We haven't figured out what they are. And they say they are not publishers, but they, it sure seems like they're publishers. There was a time, though, uh, and I'm old enough to remember it, uh, when there was regulation and there were uh, filters that would gone through this. Uh, and, you know, there was always that mindset some people had. Well, I saw it in a, in a newspaper. I heard it on the radio, so it must be true. And and although that was probably not true, but the, the fact is, is there was a sense of security that some people had because they said, look, there are broadcast standards councils. Uh, there are other, you know, oversight bodies. Uh, if you want to write a letter to the editor in a newspaper, uh, you have to sign it with your name. Uh, and, it, and, and your phone number, so there's some accountability to that. Uh, but your point's well taken. On social media right now, there is no filter. I mean, anybody can do anything and say anything to, to a certain extent anyway, much more so than they could in previous days. Uh, and, and maybe we are falsely assuming that, well, those, those vetting processes are still in place, but they're not. Exactly. And, and I think this is where two really dangerous things meet, which is, First, first of all, the opportunity to engage in, in that unfiltered discussion. And second of all, our tendency, which is a, a universal human tendency, to, um, to look or to, to engage more with salacious news. So that's why, of course, um, uh, tabloid newspapers exist. That's why trashy TV shows exist. It's because we sort of, it, it caters to our, to our lowest instincts. Uh, but if, if now, which is the situation we have now, we can see that news and we can share it. And th there are no consequences if we share incorrect information. That's how we get to the, or how we have arrived at the situation where we are now. But we have uh, not just differing views, we have differing uh, realities. And so what Kellyanne Conway said four years ago about alternative facts, it's the reality now where we don't even, uh, we don't even consult the same reality for information we, we live in, in separate universes which is why uh, we saw the, the results at um, um, at the capitol uh, on the 6th of january where these people were convinced 
that they were right that Trump had won the election and we can say, oh yeah, they were they were reading disinformation, listening to disinformation. Well, they were sure that they alone had the real truth. The numbers tell a different story about about the Trumpism and, and the followers of him. Uh, we understand that there are some acolytes, of course, that, that fully understand that you know what, what's going on here are falsehoods, but and they could have political motivation for it, and a number of other reasons why why they're perpetrating those those false stories. We get that, but seventy four million people voted for this guy, uh, and not all of them are like that. Some of them actually truly have read this and actually say, yeah, there's some merit to that. How does that happen? Well, I mean, people can vote for, for Trump or, or Boris Johnson or whoever the candidate is based on, on verified information and conclude, yeah, I, 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 I support this candidate's political program. The, the problem is when people make that decision based on incorrect information. And, and, and that is the problem that we have, that we have no verified source of information. Imagine if, if the U.S. or any other country uh, or every other country, I should say, had a verified source of information where people could that we, people could turn to to uh, consult the facts, and then they would say, "Okay, I think I'll support Trump in this election. I think I'll support Biden in this election." Of course, most countries have that, and that is public service. Public service, radio and television, is not perfect, but it's, at least they have some modicum of of um, of trust, enjoy some some, some a minimum of trust or a certain level of trust with the population, then they can all turn to that uh, resource and say, yeah, okay, now I'm going to read up on the candidates and, and make, make up my mind about whom, whom to, to vote for. There's a, a, a quote, I think it's probably one of the most misused quotes in, in all of literature uh, from Shakespeare, Henry III, let's kill all the lawyers. And, and everybody uses that for the negative connotation of lawyers. But if you read the play uh, in context, basically what the, this was about somebody who wanted to overthrow the government and simply say, get rid of the lawyers, because without lawyers and the justice system, there would be anarchy and it's easier to take over. So there, there was a method to, to what he was saying. Well, it's not the lawyers now. What it is now is the media that the Trumps and those who perpetrate these things want to get rid of. And he's been, I think, to a certain extent, very successful in discrediting what they call mainstream media to say, don't believe anything you read or anything you hear on that media because they're all lies. And a lot of people are buying into that now. Yes. Uh, but this is a, a, um, a development that has been going on for, for a number of years Um long before Trump. And so in a previous life, I was a journalist. And, and in one of my uh, positions, I my job was to interview political leaders and, and uh, so I, uh, the likes of, of Francois Hollande, who was at that point the president of, of France, uh, mm -hmm. Christine Lagarde, people like that. And I found them all to have some degree of uh, genuine uh, thinking, and they all wanted to, to improve whatever the situation was in the country or the organization they, they headed. Um, but the, the response that these interviews got was always, oh, these politicians always lie. And yes, they, they do have some talking points, and, and they don't always, they are not always completely genuine, but they have some genuine, uh, some degree of genuine uh, thinking and, and uh, acting to them, uh, or, or action to them. And I, I found that baffling, so I then went to um, Oxford University's Reuters Institute as a, as a uh, visiting fellow to write about uh, this uh, growing divide between the political and media elite on one hand and, and the voters on the other hand. And I uh, proposed uh, as a solution, uh, one of the solutions was that um, news media should have, uh, just like uh, MPs have, uh, parliamentarians have, 
um, uh, office hours in their constituencies where anybody can come in and discuss uh, with with the MT. And and I think that is still a good uh, a good solution for news media. They can uh, uh, they can set up pop up offices uh, all around the country. Have pop up offices. Invite anybody uh, to come along. Anybody uh, locally to come along and see how they work. And people would discover that it's not as nefarious as they think it is. And and so I still hope that that will happen. And I think now that that that. Uh, information the information crisis is so severe and so palpable for everybody i think it will happen you know, yeah we do really re-establish that trust i think in in, in media uh in media literacy you're absolutely right but I, I all too often though when something like this happens and we are shocked by this and i think a lot of us i have been over the last number of years and, and your point's well taken elizabeth this is not new to trumpism trumpism might have uh, exacerbated the situation and put a name to you know, the quote-unquote fake news uh but it's been happening before that as well but we rely on government always to say well you know what they've got to regulate that but it can't always be government does the private sector have a role to play here i i completely agree uh it's uh, it's it's almost too easy to say oh, the government should regulate it because then it means that that uh, the, the private sector participants don't have to do anything they are released from their responsibility and they can just say oh yeah we're waiting for the government to regulate and until that happens we'll just uh, uh, proceed as as uh, before uh, yes they have a huge responsibility it it's it, it, even if it's not a legal responsibility, yes, they have a moral responsibility. And I, I must say that having watched uh, Facebook and, and Twitter grow from, from a very small size back when I was based in Silicon Valley to where they are now, yes, it, it, it may not have been their intention to become these behemoths of, of, of information. It may not have been their intention when they, when they first started, but, but that's what they are now. And they do have a moral responsibility. And when I look at, for example, somebody like Bill Gates, who uh, has used his, his position uh, in, in the world of business for the, for the greater good of, of humanity. I think at least uh, these leaders could do something, even just a, a tiny fraction of what he has done. It won't, har- it won't harm uh, their bottom line, and it will, uh, in fact, uh, have immeasurably positive, it would have immeasurably positive consequences for society. And it, it has to be said, it's in their interest, too, that America continue to thrive, that, that various Western countries, that, that uh, every single country continue to thrive and not descend into uh, disinformation-fueled uh, anarchy, because that is what, uh, what may happen if, uh, unless the information environment changes. So it's, it is in their interest. They just have to discover that, that uh, their interest is wider or is, 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 uh, goes beyond the bottom line. Uh, you contrast that attitude with Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook, who's essentially said, I'm going to print anything uh, and, and I'll leave it, leave it up to the reader to decide whether it's right or wrong or misinformation. But without context, that's impossible to make that evaluation. I, I, I agree with you totally. The argument, though, Elizabeth, every time somebody is called out on this, uh, is, is freedom of speech. Uh, you know, you can't, you can't take away my freedom of speech. Uh, where's the balance here between allowing whatever to be said and by whomever and, and understanding there have to be some standards well i mean the world has uh, has seen a, a lot of uh, uh, verbal uh, jousting over over the centuries and and i think it goes back to you know the, the old uh, golden rule do as do to others as you want them to do to yourself i mean if, if 
if you value free speech, then you should use it in such a way that, that you don't hurt others, harm others, because that's the way you want them to act towards you. And I think, uh, especially in the United States, where things have gone too far, is that people uh, put, uh, only, only consider themselves and their rights. And yes, of course, it's nice to, to be a bit selfish every now and then and say, well, I don't care about others. But actually, we are... Uh, we are all we all depend on on our fellow human beings to treat us uh, uh, respectfully too, and so I think we can all if, if we if we switch perspectives and, and see uh, uh, see uh, the situation from somebody else's perspective, we can say, oh yeah, maybe I shouldn't I shouldn't uh, discredit that person, or I shouldn't attack that person online because the same thing could happen to me. But I, I think we have to get back to that uh, that mindset of, of thinking of ourselves as as existing in a community, and and if I may uh, make a uh, maybe slightly uh, 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 loosely connected point, it's about 20 years ago. A Harvard sociologist named Robert Putnam published a book called Bowling Alone, and your readers uh, have probably heard of it. And it it's um, it's documented the decline of civic participation in the United States, and I'm sure that the same trend is true in Canada and the same trend the same trend is definitely true in European countries. And so back twenty years ago it was just a sort of a point of interest. Well participation is declining. Now we are seeing the result of that because people don't take their fellow human beings into account when interacting with information. And so I think we have reached a really alarming point or a tipping point even when we have to decide collectively or at least for ourselves, and I hope enough people decide for themselves that this can't be allowed to continue because we can't allow our communities to deteriorate even further. Fascinating discussion, a very germane, of course, considering what's going on these days. Uh, Elizabeth Broth, thank you so very much for spending some time with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.